So we are in Luke chapter 2, the third song of our Advent series. And this is the famous Christmas passage, Luke 2, verses 1 through 20. Luke 2, verses 1 through 20. Please listen carefully as this is the Word of God. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for giving us your word and making us your people. Lord, as we come to your word, we pray you would give us understanding. We ask that you would help us to see Jesus this morning and help us to understand the true meaning of Christmas. For this, we need your grace, and so we ask by your spirit that you would give this to each of us this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. One of the truly classic Christmas shows is a Charlie Brown Christmas. And in the show, we get to hear some really special things. So just listen in to a few of my favorite parts. It begins with the narrator speaking. It was finally Christmas time, the best time of the year. The houses were strung with tiny colored lights, their windows shining with Warm yellow glow only Christmas could bring. The scents of pine needles and hot cocoa mingled together, wafting through the air 
and the sweet sounds of Christmas carols could be heard in the distance. Fluffy white snowflakes tumbled from the sky onto a group of joyful children as they sang and laughed, skating on the frozen pond in town. Everyone was happy and full of holiday cheer. That is, everyone except for Charlie Brown. And Charlie Brown speaks to Linus and he says, I think there must be something wrong with me. I just don't understand Christmas, I guess. I might be getting presents and sending Christmas cards and decorating trees and all that, but I'm still not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. And Linus says, Charlie Brown, you are the only person I know who can take a wonderful season like Christmas and turn it into a problem. <laughs> Maybe Lucy is right. Of all the Charlie Browns in the world, you are the Charlie Brownest. <laughs> and so second-guessing himself, Charlie Brown begins to wonder if he really knows what Christmas is all about. And so after being lambasted uh, by Lucy and the rest of the Peanuts gang, in desperation, Charlie Brown asks his famous question, isn't there anyone who understands what Christmas is all about? And Linus steps forward, a trusty sage with blanket in tow. <laughs> Linus says, sure, I can tell you what Christmas is about. And he quietly walks to center stage to make his point and says, lights please. And bathed in a spotlight, Linus begins reciting the biblical passage recalling the birth of Jesus. He quotes the second chapter of the Gospel of St. Luke, verses 8 through 14 from the King James Version. And it says, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. And when he finished... Linus turned to his friend and said, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. And that's our passage for today. Now throughout this passage, and we're going to look specifically at verses 8 through 20, the focus of Luke is going to be on Jesus and the gospel. But the way he focuses on Jesus and the gospel is not so much by putting the spotlight on Jesus. You'll notice Jesus is mentioned almost in passing. He's the child in the manger. And there's almost no other reference to Jesus in this passage. But the passage is all about Jesus, and it's all about the gospel. And the way Luke draws our attention to Jesus and to the gospel is to paint three different pictures for us. First, in verse 8, he shows us a group of shepherds in the hillside around Bethlehem, uh, around Judea, and that's the first scene 
he uses to draw our attention to Jesus. And then from verses 9 through 14, he shows us another scene, starts with one angel, and expands to a sky full of angels announcing the gospel. And then the sky full of angels draws our attention to Jesus. And then at the end, verse 19, the scene changes, and now it's Mary in the solitude of her own thoughts, the shepherds leaving the manger scene and heading back to their fields praising God. And so you have this left with this woman pondering and the shepherds praising. So there's three scenes. First, the shepherds in the countryside, then the angels in the sky, and then Mary pondering and the shepherds praising God. And throughout these three scenes, Luke draws our attention to Jesus and to the gospel. And we start by seeing that God is gracious to sinners. God is gracious to sinners. First of all, in verse 8, we see something of how gracious our God is to sinners. Now, if you look at verse 8, which you should do, you could say to yourself, um, Dave, I'm not getting it. I'm missing it. Not sure how verse 8 speaks to God being gracious to sinners. Well, let's look at it. It says, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, you may or may not know that shepherds were not held in the highest esteem in their culture. Shepherds were not allowed to give testimony in a court of law in Israel at this time because they were thought to be notorious liars. As a class of people, shepherds weren't trusted. They were not considered particularly honest people with other people's sheep. Apparently, shepherds had a reputation for having difficulty in discerning the difference between mine and thine. And they were apt to liberate yours and bring it into theirs. I remember hearing a story about Scottish shepherds and they were on the north side of the border and they would often look across the border at those English sheep who never had the privilege of grazing in the lush pastures of Scotland. So they would liberate those English sheep so they might enjoy the experience of the Scottish countryside. Well, apparently this is a time-honored problem among shepherds, and the shepherds in Palestine were known for swiping a sheep or two that didn't belong to them. Now, let me hasten to say that there's nothing in this passage that indicates that these particular shepherds were anything other than devout men. In fact, their response in this passage to the revelation they received from the angels is a model for all of us. They do exactly what you would want any godly person to do. Uh, when the gospel is shared and the glory of God uh, is revealed and the announcement of the gospel is made, but to really understand this passage, you have to understand they're from a class of people that are generally despised. And one of the reasons they're despised is for the most part, they were not involved with the religion of the day. For the most part, they weren't allowed to go to religious services. See, shepherds, because of their profession, uh, taking care of sheep, came into contact pretty much on a daily basis with unclean animals and dead animals. And it rendered them ceremonially unclean and unable to participate 
in the services of the temple. And it's, it's kind of ironic, it's fascinating. It's very likely that this flock of sheep that was being shepherded by this group of shepherds is designated for the temple sacrifices. If we're to believe what the rabbis tell us from that time, flocks this close to Jerusalem are all devoted to the sacrificial system. And yet the shepherds themselves, even though they're raising animals to be used to be sacrificed in the temple, are unclean because they came in contact with those same animals and with unclean animals and with dead animals, and they themselves would never be allowed to participate in public worship. If you could imagine how good church-going folk in Israel might have thought about those folks who weren't so faithful in going to church. They were looked down upon. They were held in suspicion. And for all these reasons, they're not very highly regarded. And yet, where does the announcement of the angel come? Doesn't come to the king. Doesn't go to the royal court. Doesn't go to the temple. Doesn't go to the priests, the Sanhedrin, or the Sadducees. It doesn't go to the Pharisees, those Bible-believing elders that led the local synagogues. To none of them does the announcement come. It comes to shepherds. And in the very announcement of the angels coming to those who are not highly regarded by their contemporaries and quite frankly are just considered to be uh, gross, low-life, horrible sinners, to them the announcement comes. And I believe that that fact, by considering the people to whom the announcement is first made, we learn something about our gracious God. And it's something that's going to be played out in the rest of the Gospel of Luke. Three times in the Gospels, once in Matthew, once in Mark, and once in Luke, Jesus says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, Jesus is saying, I didn't come for people who think they're already righteous. I came for people who are sinners. Now, Jesus isn't suggesting that there's a class of people who aren't sinners. He is suggesting that there's a class of people who think they're not sinners. There is a class of people who think they don't need the grace of God. And sadly, in Israel's time, and also sadly in our own time, some of those people who think they don't need the grace of God happen to be very religious. And Jesus is saying, I've come for sinners like those shepherds that so many of you despise and look down on. Those are the kind of people that get the gospel announced to them. And I want you to pause and think about that for a moment because it's really important. Entitlement, feeling entitled, having a sense of our entitlement kills gratitude. If we think we're owed the grace of God, if we think we deserve the mercy of God, then we'll never be grateful for it and we'll never be ready to receive it. It's only someone who knows that she needs grace who's in a position to appreciate that grace when it's offered. It's only when a person knows that he needs the mercy of God that the mercy of God is sweet. And that's so important for us to realize. And it's so easy for us to forget. 
If our understanding of ourselves is that we're pretty good people, and of course, you know, God will cut us some slack because after all, that's his job. You know, I mean, he's here to forgive us, right? If that's your thinking, you will never adequately understand grace. And you may not understand the gospel at all. Now, you know, if you're a member of this church, which the majority of you here are, we are going to have a new member class in January for those who aren't, so nobody's off the hook. But if you're a member or will be a member, at some point you took the membership vows and said those words from the first question were be that, that are... Um, that you acknowledge that you are a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure. Yes, you said those words. And I want to remind you, friends, that means you can't be a member of Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church if you're a good person. We don't allow good people to be members of Potomac Hills. The only people that can be members of Potomac Hills are sinners. And sinners who not only admit that they're sinners, but sinners who say, I justly deserve God's displeasure. There's a lot of people out there today who think God's reputation is on the line if he's not gracious to them. And they're in for a surprise. But you know what they say, if God's not compassionate and gracious and forgiving towards me, that'll ruin his reputation because after all, he owes me grace and mercy. And if he doesn't show me grace and mercy, well then, his grace and mercy can be called into question. Well, the very first thing we say as members of this church is that we deserve God's just displeasure. We don't deserve his grace and mercy. We do deserve his just displeasure. <coughs> and so when he shows us grace and mercy, it should be the most joyous thing in the world. Because we, we realize we don't deserve it. That may be surprising for some of you. But until you realize you're a sinner, you're not ready to respond to the glorious, unexpected, lavish grace of God held out in the gospel. And we learn from the very announcement of the angels to the shepherds, those same people who are looked down upon as sinners, God came to them with the good news of the gospel. God sent his son to just those kind of people. If you look at Jesus saying in Matthew 9, 13, it's in the context of people who are very religious. They're saying, Jesus, what are you doing? You're eating with sinners. And Jesus says, well, as a matter of fact, I am. I came for sinners. I came for people who know they need forgiveness of sins. I didn't come for people who are self-righteous, i.e. you. And so you got to ask yourself, does this reality that you're a sinner, that you stand in need of grace, does it have any impact on your life? Does it affect the way you look at God, the way you look at yourself, or the way you look at others, or the way you treat others? Our God is a gracious God, and he reaches out to sinners. And we see that here in verse 8. 
The second unusual thing that we see in this very familiar passage is that angels love the gospel. Angels love the gospel. Look with me at verse 9. It says, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Here we get into the three really important verses. Four really important verses. I can't count. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. It comes very apparent in these verses that angels love the gospel. I am dying of the heat up here. No. Angels love the gospel. They're not announcing every aspect of the gospel. They don't cover it in great depth. You don't get the truths that you would get from the Apostle Paul in Romans and Corinthians. But they announce some really important aspects of the gospel in this song. Listen to their language. Look at what they say. First of all, look at verse 11. They say, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. They're already talking about what? Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. What's the city of David? Bethlehem. Where is it in the Old Testament that it said the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem? In Micah. Micah tells us the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. So the angels are excited about the fact that in Jesus, the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah are being fulfilled. It's very interesting in the preaching of the gospel uh, in the book of Acts, it almost always starts this way, with Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. And they're excited about that. The angels are excited about that. They're singing about that. Look again at verse 11. Who is this has been born? A Savior who is Christ. Now Christ is not a last name for Jesus. We use it that way, but it's really a title, a very important title. It means Messiah. And what they're saying is that the Messiah, Jesus, has been born, and he is our Savior. He's the anointed one, the Messiah that God prophesied in the uh, days of the Old Testament. So the gospel has announced that Jesus is not only fulfilling Old Testament uh, prophecy, but he is the Savior, the Messiah. And the angels are excited about that, and they're singing about that. Look again at verse 11. It doesn't stop. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Again, that isn't a description that Jesus is simply our master or our boss, although that's true. The word Lord in the Old Testament very often is the name of God. You remember when Moses encounters God at the burning bush back in Exodus 3. God tells Moses that he's going to go to the elders of Israel and say to them, God has sent me to deliver you out of the hand of Pharaoh. And so Moses starts giving excuses. 
And one of the excuses that Moses gives is, oh Lord, who am I going to say is sending me? What's your name? I don't know your name. And God says, you tell them that I am who I am sent you. Tell them that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sent you, and his name is I am who I am, Yahweh, the short version of which is Lord. And when the angels announce that the Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord, is born, they are announcing the divinity of Jesus is at the very heart of the gospel. Then again, if you look at verse 12, they speak of the condensation of of Christ in his humiliation, in his incarnation. Those are three big words that say God came and became a man. God in the flesh. Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Savior is born. But at the end of verse 12, where do we find him? In a manger. The manger is a nice sounding word that means feeding trough. How's that for a contrast? A Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord God in the flesh, is born feeding trough. So they announce the humiliation of Christ as part of the gospel. And they announce that Jesus has come in order that we might enjoy the peace of God, the total favor and well-being that only God can give. Look at verse 14. What do they sing? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I think it's an amazing verse. And we're so used to it, we just read right through it, and we don't see what it says. Who is it that's announcing peace? Go back to verse 13. Suddenly there was with this one angel a multitude of the heavenly host. In the Old Testament, heavenly host can refer to the stars because there's a lot of them up there. But it can also refer to the legions, the armies of God's angels. And that's what it's referring to here. Suddenly with that one angel is a heavenly army. You have to understand this army. I think hopefully, if you were here through the book of Revelation, you learned a few things about angels. They're not soft and fluffy and cuddly. They're big and scary, and they have swords. And this army of angels is more powerful than any nuclear weapon, than a a million or a billion nuclear weapons. This army of angels could incinerate every human being on earth should God appoint it. This army of angels is far more powerful than anything that we in our finite human limitations can conceive of. And this army of angels is here to announce what? Peace. Normally we don't send the army to announce peace. Normally we send the army to kill people and break things. But this army comes to announce peace. And I think in the very announcement of peace by this army, we're reminded that one day this army is going to come again. And it's going to come again with Jesus and it will be too late for sinners who don't repent. Go back and look at Revelation 14 and Revelation 19. But now, now is the time to stretch out your hand and receive the free gracious peace that's being offered. 
because then it will be too late. But these angels, you understand, they're excited about the gospel. And it's easy to say, Dave, that's their job. It's their job to make this announcement. It's their job to sing praise to God. We have this image of angels punching their time card, singing and punching out. It doesn't work that way. Angels never go through the motions. You and I might go through the motions. There's days where we may be uh, here singing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, and our minds are a million miles away, and we're mad at each other, and we're going through the motions. Angels don't do that. When the angels say glory to God in the highest, they mean it, and they're genuinely excited about the gospel. And I want to tell you this, and I want you to get it, because I don't think that angels ought to be more excited about the gospel than we are. I don't think angels ought to be more excited about the gospel than we are. Because these angels don't need to be forgiven. They're without sin. They haven't rebelled. They didn't need Jesus to die for them. But you and I have rebelled. You and I are sinners. We ought not let uh, the angels outpraise us for the gospel. The angels are excited about the gospel. We ought to be even more excited about the gospel. Which begs the question, are you excited about the gospel? What do you think about it? Does your praise of God for his grace, his undeserving grace and mercy in the gospel rival the praise of these angels? We have every reason to praise God for the gospel far more than the angels because we're the beneficiaries of the gospel. It ought to be in our hearts. We ought to be thinking about it. We ought to be thinking about some aspect of the gospel. It ought to be part of our life to ponder the gospel. And that's because the gospel should cause a response. The gospel should cause a response. Look at the end, verses 19 and 20. It says, But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they heard and seen as it had been told them. The gospel shared with Mary through the shepherds and to the shepherds from the angels sets Mary pondering and the shepherds praising. The response of Mary and the shepherds, different though they are, the response of those two groups of people is a model of believing response to divine revelation, pondering the gospel, praising God for the gospel. And if you're pondering uh, and praising God for the gospel, there's no way you can do that from an ungrateful or a uh, not understanding heart. I mean, think about it. No doubt Mary is overwhelmed by everything that she has seen. And she expresses her wonder in one way, and the shepherds express their praise in another way. Mary gets quiet and is pondering, and the shepherds can't keep it in, and they're glorifying and praising God. Two different kinds of people, two different kinds of responses, but they're both an example for us. You think about all different kinds of people here today. It's a joy as a pastor to see 
older saints who've been through so many dangers and toils and snares who are still trusting in the Savior through sunshine and shadow, trusting in the Lord. I find that immensely encouraging, and so should you. And yet, both young Christians and older Christians have reasons for pondering and for praising. So Mary and the shepherds are an example to us. The gospel ought to set us to pondering and praising God. To be honest, there ought to be nothing that we'd rather think about than God and the gospel. It ought to be part of our conversation with our best friends. We ought to be able to talk about all sorts of common things, but we also ought to be able to insert into our conversation uh, talk about the gospel. That's what should be most important to us. You ever have those moments when you're not thinking about anything? And in those moments, what are you thinking about? You know, where your mind just sort of goes off somewhere, like it is for some of you right now. <laughs> is the gospel ever there? Is it ever part of your deepest thoughts and desires of your heart? It was for Mary. It was for the shepherds. Luke gives us so much to think about in this passage. Basically, he's telling us throughout the first several chapters of Luke that we're supposed to be a gospel-saturated people, a people who realize we're sinners and we didn't deserve God to reach out to us in grace, but he did anyway. And we ought not to be bored by that. We ought to be overjoyed by that. We ought to be surprised by that. And we ought to love to sing about that. And God in the gospel has given us something to ponder and something to praise. And so we ought to ponder and we ought to praise God for what he has done. Because it's truly a story of a great reversal. New Narnia movies come out. And in C.S. Lewis's uh, masterful children's stories of Narnia, the first one, my favorite, it's already come out, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, sort of sets the background for the whole series. It's under the curse. The land of Narnia is under a curse, the curse of the White Witch. And she's an evil queen, places a spell on the land so that it's always winter and never Christmas. And under her control, Narnia's future looks pretty bleak until word gets out that Aslan is on the move. And in the story, Aslan is a noble lion who represents Christ, and he's coming to set things straight, and he's coming to destroy the white witch and to reverse the curse on Narnia. And the first sign of Aslan's movement towards this cursed land is that the snow begins to melt. And you hear them say, spring is in the air. And the cold begins to fade. And the sun begins to shine. And everything in Narnia begins to change. You'll have to read the book uh, to see how the story ends. But if I'm asked to describe the true meaning of Christmas, I'd like to say that the birth of Christ is the sure and certain sign that God is on the move. 
The arrival of Jesus 2,000 years ago ensured that God had begun the process of reversing the curse of sin and recreating all things. In Jesus, God was moving in a new way. And in the words of C.S. Lewis, winter began stirring backwards. And all of Jesus' ministry, the words he spoke, the miracles he performed, showed there's a new order in town, God's order. And when Jesus healed the sick and raised the dead and forgave the desperate, he did so to show that with the arrival of God in the flesh came the restoration of the way God intends things to be. New life is given, health is restored, God is reversing the curse of death, disease, dysfunction. The incarnation of Christ begins the great reversal. Some of you are familiar with the singer Matt Redmond, contemporary Christian uh, worship leader, singer. He recently wrote, I thought this was wonderful. We have it sunk deep into our collective consciousness that Christmas is just for happy people. You know, those with idyllic family situations enjoyed around stocking-strewn hearth, hearth dreams. But he reminds us that Jesus came for those who need to be rescued. And it's a, a long post online, but there was one paragraph that just captured my attention. He says, Jesus came for those who look in the mirror and see ugliness. Jesus came for daughters whose fathers never told them they were beautiful. Jesus is for those who go to wing night alone. Christmas is for those whose lives have been wrecked by cancer, and the thought of another Christmas seems like an impossible dream. Christmas is for those who would be nothing but lonely if not for Facebook. Christmas is for those whose marriages have careened against the retaining wall and are threatening to flip over the edge. Christmas is for the son whose father keeps giving him hunting gear when he wants paintbrushes. Chris, Christmas is for smokers who cannot quit even in the face of a death sentence. Christmas is for prostitutes, adulterers, and porn stars who long for love in every wrong place. Christmas is for college students who are sitting in the midst of their family and already can't wait to get out for another drink. Christmas is for those who traffic in failed dreams. Christmas is for those who've squandered the family name and fortune. They want to be home but can't imagine a gracious reception. Christmas is for parents watching their children's marriage fall into disarray. Christmas is about the gospel of grace for sinners. Whatever situation you're in, Christmas reminds us that God has not left us hopeless or despairing. A savior has come who is Christ the Lord. Tim Keller observes that Christ's miracles are not the suspension of the natural order, but the restoration of the natural order. The reminder of what once was prior to the fall and a preview of what will eventually be reality once again. A world of peace and justice without death, disease, or conflict. And when Christ comes again, the process of reversing the curse of sin and recreating all things will be complete. The peace on earth that the angels announced the night that Christ was born will become a universal reality. 
and God's rescue mission will one day be complete. And the fraying fabric of our fallen world will be fully and perfectly rewoven. Everything and everyone in Christ will live in perfect harmony. And for those who found forgiveness of sins in Christ, there will one day be no more sickness, no more death, no more tears, no more division, no more tension. And the pardoned children of God will work and worship in a perfectly renewed earth without the interference of sin. And we who believe the gospel will enjoy sinless hearts and sinless minds and disease-free bodies. And all that causes us pain and discomfort will be destroyed. And we'll finally be able to enjoy what is most enjoyable with unbounded energy and passion forever. The Christmas story tells us there is no salvation, uh, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12. It should cause our hearts to sing out the Gloria in excelsis Deo. To him of praise to the Lord God, the birth of the Savior brings glory to God. He's held in highest honor and glory, and he alone receives the most exalted place in the universe. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The shepherds weren't excited about meeting the angels. They were actually scared of the angels. But they were excited about experiencing the glory of God. And Christmas is the celebration of this process begun and the promise that one day it will be completed. And it should lead us to ponder these things. It should lead us to pray about these things. And it should lead us to praise God for these things. And we should probably start now. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that. And then I'll close. Heavenly Father, it's easy to get caught up in this season. And even when we try to remember what it's about, we read this passage. It's so familiar, we just miss it. Lord, we read, the shepherds ran off to spread the word of your birth. And Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Hurrying off has always been easier for me than sitting still. It's always been easier for me to do productive things for you rather than to spend unrushed time with you. I confess this is sin. Simply isn't okay. Knowing about you is not the same thing as knowing you. To know you is eternal life, and I do want to know you so much better than I already do. I want to be able to say that I treasure you in my heart and ponder who you are and contemplate Uh, your life within the Trinity from all eternity. I want to understand everything you've accomplished through your life, death, and resurrection. Everything you're doing as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Everything that you will be to us in the new heavens and the new earth. Holy Spirit, there is so much to ponder and so much to praise. And it's not as though I'm a stranger to pondering and praising but I tend to ponder and praise a lot of things, things that lead to a bankrupt spirit, things that lead to an impoverished heart, things that lead to a tired body. 
Jesus, this advent, by the power of the gospel, slow all of us down. Settle us down. Focus us on yourself. Thank you for the gospel. Father, grant that we would know that we need it. Grant that we would understand it. Grant that we would believe it. Grant that we would ponder it for the rest of our lives. And grant that we would praise you for it with both our lips and our lives. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.